reading this morning comes from Exodus, the 32nd chapter, where I'd like to read for you verses 30 to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's word. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up unto Jehovah, for adventure I shall make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto Jehovah and said, O this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And Jehovah said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And Jehovah smote the people, because they made the calf which Aaron made. And our New Testament reading is found in Revelation, the third chapter, verses 1 to 6, and then an additional verse in the 13th chapter, verse 8. Revelation chapter 3, the first six verses. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast the name that thou livest, Yet thou art dead. Be thou watchful, and establish the things that remain, which were ready to die. For I have found no works of thine perfected before my God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received, and didst hear, and keep it, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. But thou hast a few names in Sardis, did not defile their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh shall thus be arrayed in white garments, and I will in no wise blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then if you'll turn to the 13th chapter of Revelation, and the eighth verse, we read that all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, that is the beast, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that has been slain. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. More and more I'm fascinated by the fact that names mean so much to us, our own names in particular. It's tough for me, um, my name is spelled in a way that uh, some people think doesn't sound like the way it's pronounced. I don't know, I've never had any difficulty with it myself, but then again I was raised with it, so I guess I know how to pronounce it. It seems so obvious, you know, A-H makes the aw sound and you get bon sen. But you know, I have to tell people, if I call some way, someplace I want to make a reservation for my wife and I to have dinner, I usually have to either give 
uh, phonetic spelling of it, B-O-N-S-O-N, I'll say, or I'll say B-A-H-N-S-E-N. It rhymes with Johnson, Bonson, Johnson. Inevitably, they call for Mr. Johnson, and we never get our table, but... Uh, <laughs> Names are important to us. We don't like to see our names um, messed up. We don't like, to, if your name is Bonson, you probably don't enjoy being called Bunsen or Bronson or Banson. But I get used to it, and with a little sanctification and patience, I can put up with that. We're sensitive about those sorts of things. I remember a uh, James Dodson film that I, uh, I saw once about raising children. I can't remember the title of it, but the illustration, and it struck me, of a small child who was very angry because of other children, his name was Michael, calling him Michael Michael Motorcycle. And I thought to myself, that's such a, an odd illustration because I don't consider that anything destructive. I, I thought that was rather cute. I, would, I have a son named Michael, and it seemed to me that if I were to say that to him, he shouldn't be offended. Dad's just having fun with his name. But the illustration indicated that this child didn't like his name being rhymed with something else because he thought it was trivializing his name or making fun of him in some way. We are sensitive about our names. We like to see our names treated properly. We like to see our names written in the right places and looked upon in the right way. I wonder how many here, I won't have you raise your hands because there'd be some embarrassment. How many of you here when the new phone books come out immediately open up to see if your name is in there? <laughs> that it's spelled right and they have the number down right. We tend to do that. And I know authors, myself included. I, I don't think with the enthusiasm I've seen in others, but nevertheless, authors, when a new book will come out written by them, you know, they want to sit down and look at that book and hold on and here's this product, and they see their name on it. That's important to them. They did that. We want our names written in the right places. We'd like our names written upon plaques honoring our service or upon graduation diplomas. We want our names written in the right places on our marriage licenses and married to the right people, hopefully. <laughs> we want our names on a driver's license. You get to be 16 years old, you, you'll notice how important that is to a teenager, that his name is written on that driver's license. Our names are important when they're written on deeds or contracts of service or purchase. Our names are very precious to us when we see them written on love notes. Remember that song that Brad did many years ago? I'm dating myself. You know, about a man who picked up a diary and read in it all these wonderful things, and uh, he thought this girl was in love with him, and he found out later that she wasn't writing about him at all. See, it'd be, it would have been nice if she had put the name down so that it could be obvious who this love note or this diary entry was about. I remember very vividly how crucial it was to me. I don't think it would have that importance now, but when I was a teenager, especially in the school that I attended, it was very important to be an athlete. I participated in varsity athletics when I was in high school, before my heart problems became apparent anyway. And um, one day stands out very vividly when I finally got to the place where I might possibly make the varsity basketball team. What it was like to have the coach say tomorrow the cut list will be up on his office window and how we all went by the gymnasium more times than we needed to that day just to see when the list would go up and whose name, whose names would be upon the cut list who made the varsity team. We look at our high school yearbooks and it's important what people write to us with our names. You 
go to vote, it's important that your name be on the roster of citizens who have the right to do that. And so we want our names written in the right places. It's also true that we don't like our names written in certain other places. Very few of us would be happy to have our name included in graffiti on a wall. We don't enjoy it at all when our names are written on traffic tickets and recorded down with the uh, highway patrol. Arrest warrants aren't the greatest place to have your name appear. There are some people who are just mortified that their name might appear on Mr. Blackwell's worst dressed people of a certain year. And of course, in more important ways, we don't want our names found on a list of employees who are about to be laid off in a large corporation. I don't suppose anyone strives in the military to have his name appear on a war memorial. As beautiful as the memorial may be, you would prefer that it not be your name that is memorialized. And then there are people, of course, who have their names on lists where they are unwelcome to be visitors to our country, for instance, or to immigrate. That's a very dreadful list to have your name appear on as well. We want our names written in the right places. This morning I want to speak to you about having your name written in the most important place of all, your name written in the Book of Life. Indeed, the importance of having your name written in that register makes all these other illustrations Indeed, all of them put together and magnified two or three times over pale into insignificance. There's a great biblical precedent for the idea of a register of God's people. In the Old Testament, I suppose that all of you remember, especially if you've made an effort to read through the Bible in a year, many of us make that a project or have done so in the past. I hope all of you at some point have read through the Bible. But everyone who reads through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, stumbles when they come to those long lists of names. So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And we look at the genealogies and we think, well, boy, if we were going to do a Reader's Digest condensation of the Bible, we'd certainly cut this material out. Not at all entertaining, not easy to read. We, don't, we can't even pronounce these names. Why do we have to read them? Well, stop and think about it, because all Scripture is inspired of God, and all Scripture is profitable for our doctrine and for our living. The fact is that those genealogies say something important to us. If nothing else, even if you can't pronounce the names in those genealogies, the fact that there were genealogies says something about the faith of those Old Testament saints, and especially those inspired writers who included the genealogy in the Word of God. The Jews were careful to inscribe and to preserve their genealogies because they knew that the promise of salvation was tied to the promise God made in the Garden of Eden after man fell, that the seed of the woman would destroy the temple, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan and become the savior of God's people. It was important to them that they be included in the seed of the woman and not be deemed part of the seed of the serpent. And here we see, of course, the offensiveness of Christ's words, the, the rudeness, socially speaking, of Christ's words, when in John the 8th chapter he's encountered by the Jewish opponents, the Pharisees of that day, and Jesus says, when they challenge his parentage, you are of your father, the devil. You are the seed of the serpent. You are not the seed of the woman. Because you see, the Jews prided themselves. They were on the register of God's people. They were a part of that line through which the Messiah would come who would save God's people. 
so in the Old Testament, we not only see genealogies, we see as well a national register of those who belong to the people of God. This register was maintained, and we see evidence of it. For instance, this familiar psalm, Psalm 87, verses 5 and 6, we read the glorious poetic words, Yes, of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one was born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. Jehovah will count when he writes up the peoples, This one was born there beautiful promise to know that God says that when he counts up the people, when he numbers the elect, when he sets down who belongs to the register of the righteous, those who are his people, that he will say, you belong there. You are part of my people. Ezekiel, when he wanted to condemn the false prophets of his day, when he wished to condemn those who brought a word to the Jews that was not from God, it was a false vision, it was a lie in the name of God's word, but it did not come from God. When Ezekiel wrote against these false prophets, we read, Neither shall they be written in the register of the house of Israel, neither shall they enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord Jehovah. Ezekiel says, The greatest curse of all that I can pronounce upon you, false prophets, is that your name will not be in the register of Israel. The house of Israel will not include you among its inhabitants, and you shall not return to the land. Well, Nehemiah did return to the land. And very interestingly, when he returned to Jerusalem for exile, God put it into his heart to find the genealogies of those who returned and to confirm and establish that genealogy. You read of this in Nehemiah, the seventh chapter. I think we sometimes reading through the Bible, reading through the book of Nehemiah, come to that and say, well, you know, this seems to be a rather picky thing. Nehemiah, I mean, a whole chapter is given to this thing where Nehemiah has it put into his heart where he has to get this thing right. Well, that shows you how important it is. It was important to the Jews, but it was important to God, too, that on earth there be a register of those who belong to him. Those who could not show their father's houses, whether they were of Israel, by the way, those who were not found in the register, according to Nehemiah 7.64, were deemed polluted, and they could not be allowed to serve the priesthood. It was a crucial matter whether your name was on the list, whether you are registered on earth as belonging to the people of God. But you know, in our day and age, we've come to understand that earthly registers, a roll call of people here on earth, means very little at all. After all, if the church's membership role, if the list of God's people is nothing more but a, a, you know, who can you get in touch with that's a member of this club sort of list, it doesn't have a whole lot of significance. It's simply a matter of convenience. Phone numbers are found there, and it's convenient, but who cares whether you appear on the list or not? We live in an age which those who have studied philosophy might appreciate, an age that is basically nominalistic. It's only a name. It appears here, but it could be a different name. It wouldn't make any difference. But you see, the reason why in the Bible, why it is in biblical times, having your name upon the register of God's people on earth was so important is because it was assumed that the earthly list of God's people was meant to reflect a heavenly list of God's people. So that it wasn't just a matter of who belongs to our club on earth. It was a matter of who stands before God himself in heaven. 
The earthly register was meant to reflect a heavenly register. And so I want you to notice as you turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 69, verse 28. Notice how David, in calling forth death imprecations against his adversaries, associates a book of the living with those who are registered with the righteous before God. Psalm 69, verse 28. David is calling down curses upon his adversaries. This is a very strong chapter. Imprecatory Psalms, as they are called. Look at verse 27. Add iniquity unto their iniquity. Let them not come unto thy righteousness. And then in verse 28, he puts his imprecation in this way. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Now, there are conceptual associations with the book of the living and the book of life that we're going to be looking at in a moment. But I do believe on the most basic level what David is saying is kill them, God. Let them be blotted out of the book of those who are alive, out of the book of the living. But notice what the parallel phrase says. Blot them out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. David is thinking here of that register of God's people, which it was assumed was a register of the righteous before God. And David says of his adversaries, let them be blotted out of the book, not only that they might die, but that they would not stand righteous before God any longer. These are strong words, but the point is not about imprecation today. The point is about the book of life and what it means. The book of life is not just an earthly register of God's people. The book of life is a register of those who stand as righteous before God. Now, later Judaism developed the notion that God actually had two books in heaven, a book for the righteous and a book for the wicked. And the deeds of men were thought to be written and tallied up in these books. And the angels, or in some cases the archangels, or in some Jewish traditions, Enoch himself, kept the tally of the wicked deeds of the unrighteous and of the righteous deeds of God's people. Now this idea is countenanced in the New Testament, however, without any notion of the deeds of the righteous being tallied up as a way of standing right before God. The works, righteousness, legalism of intertestamental Judaism is not at all countenanced in the New Testament. But the figure of speech of the two books is definitely found there. I wonder if you can remember where in the book of Revelation. Turn with me in the book of Revelation to chapter 20, where we have an account of the great final judgment of God before his white throne on the very last day of history. Revelation 20, and let's read verse 12. John says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. Then skip to verse 15. And if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. John saw in his vision books being opened. And the book of the wicked did contain their deeds, and they were judged according to their deeds. And any who was not found in that other book called the book of life 
was for that very reason cast into the lake of fire in eternal perdition, the damnation of God that shall know no end. I think it would be appropriate to take just a moment to remind you in a day and age that does not believe first in an afterlife and much less in an afterlife that could possibly include everlasting condemnation from God. Because after all, if there is a God at all, we are told in our culture he must be, or he must, she must be, or it must be, or the force must be, whatever God there is would have to be a benevolent force that would understand any mistakes we've made in this world. The concept of sin has been washed away. The concept of the personality of God has been reduced to nothing. The notion that there is a holy God before whom even one offense against his law is worthy of everlasting damnation is something which we don't find popular. And so Gallup will take a poll to find out how many people believe that. And the people will look to the Bible of Gallup to decide, of course, there can't be an everlasting hell. The Bible tells you the word of God versus the word of men. The Bible tells you there is going to be a lake of fire. If you want to know whether that's literal fire, my answer is it's probably going to be much worse than that. But if you can imagine what it is to burn forever in a lake of fire, something that dreadful or worse is going to be instituted by God. And only those whose names are found in the book of life will be spared from that. Revelation 21, verse 27 very end of that chapter we read, and there shall in no wise enter into the new Jerusalem anything unclean or he that makes an abomination and a lie, but only they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who have their names registered in the Lamb's book shall enter the new Jerusalem, while those who are judged out of the book of their wicked deeds will enter into the lake of fire. My friends, it's very important to ask, where is your name written? That's something that is some that is a matter that should be of crucial importance to us. Not whether our names are on the basketball cup list. Not whether our names are to be found in the citizenship of the United States. But whether our names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I want to suggest to you that this concept of the Lamb's Book of Life, the notion of God keeping books, in the register of God's people from the Old Testament. But this concept is what makes church membership so very important. Based on the Old Testament precedent of a register of God's covenant people, a register that was supposed to reflect the list of the righteous who stand before God, the church on earth is called upon to keep a book as well, a book of those who are recognized on earth as belonging to the covenant community churches to keep a public register of those who are God's people. And this book of church membership which we keep, this register of those who are admitted to the kingdom of God by means of the keys of the kingdom that God's ordained officers exercise is in fact meant to reflect what has already been established in heaven. We see that in Matthew the 16th chapter verse 19 familiar words of Jesus, but turn with me to them. Matthew 16, at the 19th verse, where our Savior says, having spoken of the gates of Hades not prevailing against his church, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And now listen closely, friends. Whatsoever 
thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus says that the exercise of the keys of the kingdom is very important for your eternal destiny. Because when the elders of the church use those keys to unlock the door of heaven, as it were, and say, you are admitted, it is assumed that that has been recorded in heaven. And when they lock that door and say, you have no right to the privileges of membership in God's covenant community, you have no right to the Lord's table, to baptism, or to the privileges of membership in the church, they are saying that because the assumption is it has been bound in heaven that you are not part of God's people. That does not make the church infallible. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I do not believe that our arbitrary judgments bind God. That would be preposterous, theologically speaking. But in a covenant community that tries to keep the whole word of God, we need to take much more seriously than our American culture about us, even our evangelical Christian culture about us does. We must take much more seriously this notion of church membership. Because what is bound and loosed on earth is assumed to have been bound and loosed in heaven. So it's not a trivial, it's not an idle question to ask whether your name is written on the membership list of a gospel-preaching and Bible-believing church. The notion of church membership ought not to be ignored. It ought not to be despised, as it so often is in our day. I'll tell you how difficult it is follow out this biblical concept. In our church, we believe in keeping active roles of God's people. We believe in church membership and it being recorded, knowing who is and who is not baptized, where they came into the people of God, whether it be a, an evangelical Lutheran church or a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church is irrelevant, but we need to know how it is that these people have become part of the kingdom of God. We need to recognize who among us is taken to be a Christian and who is not. We try to do that in this congregation. We try to do this in the general Orthodox Presbyterian denomination as well. And yet I find that the more we try to do that to keep things straight, the more people look at us like legalists, like people who are just paper pushers, bureaucrats worrying about little red tape marks here and there or on a computer somewhere. It doesn't make any difference to people anymore. Most churches, the larger churches in Southern California, especially most churches today, don't think it makes any difference at all. And I want to suggest there's a reason why churches don't consider church membership important and whether your name's written on the list or not. And that's because most churches have lost the concept of the life of the body of Christ. Churches have become entertainment organizations. And that's why it makes no difference that you, um, you have... 10,000 or 5,000 or 2,000 in an auditorium on a Sunday, it makes no difference to these people that those who are the elders, if they have elders, in that congregation know everybody. It makes no difference whether they serve the Lord's Supper to people who have no understanding of the Lord's Supper. Because as far as they're concerned, they are there to present a program, and others are there passively to receive it, to watch it, and to be entertained, frankly. And if you don't get up on Sunday morning to go to the entertainment service that day, if you think brunch is more uh, exciting or something you'd like to do you know, for some enrichment in your life, that's no big deal. Some people go to the show and people don't go to the show. But for the most part, we have a lot of people at the show and that's all that's important. 
Church becomes of what our presentation is to you rather than the concept of us being a body. That you have a contribution, we have a contribution, each in our particular biblically defined place. That we are the people of God. We are not entertainers. We're a family. Do you know anybody who says it really makes no difference whether my name is included as part of the family? None of us, even in the worst of families, is prepared to say that. The concept of church membership ought not to be ignored. It ought not to be despised or thought to be some kind of legalistic, bureaucratic nonsense. It's noteworthy and important that we focus our attention today in our worship service upon the writing of names on the membership list of our congregation. It is important that the names be written into the membership roles of the church. Because on this day, when we focus on the notion of receiving members into our congregation and having their names on the database, or if you will, using the old figure of speech, in the book, in the register, membership role, it's important in looking at that that we consider that our name should be written indeed in the book of life before God. Those who do not belong to a gospel preaching church, those who are not recognized by the officers of that church as belonging to it have no right to think that their names have been written in heaven. I am not suggesting, and I'll just once remind you, I'm not suggesting that a person has to be a member of a church to get into heaven. The dying thief did not have time to make profession of faith in Christ and join a church. I know that. So please don't remind me in our questioning session of that. But I'm telling you that God's ordinary and normal way of procedure is that those who name the name of Christ be joined to the body of Christ and submit to the officers there where the keys of the kingdom are exercised for their benefit, for their good, that they might be assured that their names are written not just in some bureaucratic register, but that their names are written in heaven. And in light of that, then, we look at Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6 this morning. God's promise to not blot our names out of his book. Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. I'll be very brief about this. Jesus, through the Apostle John, is writing to the church at Sardis. He has some things to call this church to repentance for. Jesus recognizes that some in the church have not failed as those who are being called to repentance have. And he also promises that those who have failed and who do repent will enjoy the same promise with those who have not. And what is the promise that Jesus holds out before them? This is not one of the most precious verses in the whole Bible, when in verse 5, Jesus says, He that overcomes shall be arrayed in white garments, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels in the very throne room of heaven where God, Jehovah, the Lord, the high and mighty sits with all his angelic host about him. Jesus says, I will enter and confess your name. I skipped a phrase, didn't I? Because the concept of Jesus professing our name is tied up with this. That he says, and I will in no wise blot your name out of the book of life. What's Jesus thinking of? He's thinking of that passage in Exodus 32. 
that we read in our scripture reading this morning. Where Moses, having come down from Mount Sinai with the tables of the law, which God himself provided that first time, remember, comes down and finds that the people, after waiting 40 days, have despaired that Moses will return and lead them. And so they've turned to Aaron, and they've said, Aaron, make us a god. Please don't have the idea that Aaron was trying to mislead the people away from Jehovah. He was not. It is said very conspicuously in Exodus 32 that the golden calf was the God that led them out of Egypt. That they were, in fact, providing sacrifices before Jehovah, represented by the golden calf. It was not that the people followed a false God, it's that they falsely followed God. They violated what we now call the second commandment. They did not worship God according to his ordained plan, but devised their own way of worship. And that, my friends, is another problem with modern Christian worship. We think we can do anything we want in worship services. We think worship services become what entertains us. It's a smorgasbord approach. Rather than doing what God has ordained to do, and as God has ordained it to be done. Well, the Jews said the same mistake. They meant well. Well, when it comes to worship, it's not the thought that counts. Although the thought does count, it's much more than that. God says, do it my way, not yours. Aaron decided that a golden calf would be a nice way to to, uh, express uh, the Jewish view of God, of Jehovah. Moses comes down from the mountain, as you know, in righteous indignation, crushes the tablets of the law as a symbolic indication that the covenant with God has been broken before he could even pronounce the covenant, the people had broken it. And Moses says in Exodus 32, you have sinned a great sin against God. For adventure I can make atonement. I will go back to God about this. Another beautiful indication of Moses, the intercessor for God's people. Moses, the mediator, who goes back up to make atonement, and there before God confesses the people have sinned greatly. And what does Moses do? He says, God... Forgive the people, or blot me out of the book of the living. Moses says, take my life, not theirs. You know, it does not take a whole lot of creativity and theological acumen to understand what Moses was reflecting. He was reflecting the Christ to come, wasn't he? The one who intercedes for the people to God. Not to intercede saying, God, oh, take it easy, be grandfatherly and indulgent toward them children make mistakes. No, the one who says, God, it is a deep and dark and dreadful sin that they've committed. They do deserve to die, but God, take my life instead. Moses says, blot me out of the book of the living, if you will not forgive these people. God does forgive them. At the end of the chapter, we read, however, that there is still a plague that they have to undergo for that. Earthly sense, they bear the consequence of their sin, even though eternally God has forgiven them. For the sake of Moses' intercession, but of course not Moses. Moses was a sinner too. Moses was but a mere man. For the sake of the Christ to come, whom Moses represented, God forgave their sin. And their names were not blotted out in the book of the living, unless they were unrighteous. And so in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, Jesus holds out this promise to you who are faithful, that he will not blot your name out of the book of the but rather confess your name before God himself in heaven. Very strangely, a man by the name of Bill Gothard 
others like him have taken a figure of speech in the Bible and done dreadful injustice to it by suggesting that the promise that your name will not be blotted out of the register of the living suggests that there are some people who are saved and then lose their salvation. But if you'll understand the full sweep of Scripture in the way that it's been presented to you this morning, you'll understand that this concept of a register of the living on earth, which reflects the register of God himself, accounts for that imagery. If your name is blotted out of the register of the righteous on earth, which is, in New Testament terms, if you are excommunicated from the church of Christ, what that means is someone who professed to be a Christian, someone who we thought in outward appearance was righteous and belonged to God, is being confirmed as not having his or her name written in the book of life after all. And Jesus promised to the faithful is you need not worry that your name will ever now, my friends, this is not at all a challenge to the notion of assurance of salvation. If you'll look at Revelation 13.8, you will see as we close this morning, it is in fact the grounding of the assurance of salvation. That the way we see things on earth is not the way they are written in heaven necessarily. But those whose names are written in heaven shall be written forever. Revelation 13.8 speaks of those who dwell on the earth worshiping the beast those who worship the beast are those whose names have not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that has been slain. Real quickly, this verse has created havoc among many Protestant interpreters for years. Because that language from the foundation of the world has improperly been associated with the verb slain rather than with the verb written, you sometimes will get, and some of you who are reading King James versions today will see right there, a reference to um, those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As though the slaying of the Lamb was from all eternity rather than the writing of the name in the book of the Lamb who is slain. When we get that grammar right, I want you to see something beyond a Greek lesson this morning. I want you to see the glory of God's grace. If your name is written in this book, would you notice whose book it is? I said Moses was a mediator to God for the people. Jesus himself is a mediator. Now portrayed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A Lamb who was to be slain. And when Jesus writes our names in his book, he indeed writes them upon his very hands and goes before God. And God, of course, will accept us for the sake of our mediator, Jesus Christ. There will be no blotting out of such a name. But you need to see as well that our names were written in the Lamb's book from the foundation of the world. Oh, there's nothing less than the doctrine of predestination. And though that is often presented as a, uh, as a dreadful doctrine, as a frightening doctrine, don't you see what a glorious and comforting and good and true doctrine it is? That if I enjoy salvation today, if I'm a member of the Christian church with the assumption my name is written in heaven, it's because God wrote it there first. God doesn't open up the register of heaven with blank lines and say, come write your name on the line and then you'll be included. God says, I wrote it first what you do on earth in making a register of God's people is a reflection of what I wrote long ago. And if I wrote it, I wrote it with indelible. 
Second Timothy 2.19 says, The firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows them who are his. And he's known us for a long time, friends. He knew us before we were knit together in our mother's wombs. He knew us long before your grandparents even thought of having grandchildren. He knew us long before there was even a family name on earth called Bonson or Jones or Smith or whatever. He knew us from all eternity because he wrote our names. And he wrote them by his grace in the Lamb's book of life. This morning we rejoice that we are receiving new members into our church. We rejoice that the congregation of God's people is being expanded. We rejoice at the many things that the future holds for us, the ministries that are being opened up to us, the ability to do educational programs or welfare programs or evangelism programs or worship programs that we just couldn't do without the manpower, without the financial support, without the place to do them. Oh, we are excited about great things that God will do, but you know I'm excited much more, much more am I excited about the fact that as we take people into our church by God's grace and hopefully through our faithful service, we rejoice that names are being written not just on earth, but in heaven. You remember how Jesus said in Luke, the 10th chapter, he sent his followers out, he sent the 70 out, and they came back and they were jumping for joy, the Bible says. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Power for the ministry. And Jesus says, rejoice not in this, but rejoice. Father, thank you for the book of life. Thank you that our membership roles on earth are indeed mistaken sometimes and give the appearance that there are those who are not Christians who really are and sometimes those who are Christians who really are not. We thank you that what stands behind the membership roles of the church is an indelibly written book, the book of life. We thank you that it is the book of the Lamb, that it is in the hands of Jesus, our mediator to you, and that we can have the assurance if we are faithful toward him, our names shall never be blotted out of that book, because he chose us from all eternity and wrote our names down there. Oh, make us rejoice in your goodness and grace to us that goes back longer than we have memories, that goes back to eternity past, where you chose us to be your own put our names in the register of the righteous, but not for any goodness you saw in us, but only for the sake of your righteous Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray.